Well, it seems strange to think about Merry Christmas and joy to the world when we've experienced a year like we've experienced. But that's why Christmas matters, because the good news is here. So I want to go back into the Gospel of Matthew today, and I want to pick up the story where we left off last time. And I'm going to walk through this story, and it, for many of you, it's going to be a very familiar story. And it's going to have pieces and parts that you've known since your childhood, but perhaps you've never known sort of the backstory or what's going on behind the scenes of this very powerful portion of Scripture, this story that Matthew brings to us. And so if you don't have your Bible out yet, I'm going to encourage you to get your Bible out or open up your app and get your device ready because we're going to be in Matthew chapter 2. What I'd like to do first is I'm going to just read through 12 verses of chapter 2. And then we'll come back because I think there's an impressive point that Matthew's trying to make. We'll walk through the scriptures and then we'll come up to that point, the takeaway that I believe that Matthew has for us that he wrote in the scripture so long ago. So, Matthew chapter 2, his story of the birth of Jesus has this. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem to Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who's been born the king of Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we've come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. When he'd called together all the people, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. The prophet says, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent, to, he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and they worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warmed in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Well, that's the story, and it's very familiar. Now, unfortunately, what I'm going to do for part of today is I'm going to take apart some of our nativity scenes. And I know that most of the time in the nativity scene, when you see it, there's a star holding over the, holding over the manger or holding over the stable, and the, the, the wise men are there. And as we go through the story, you'll see that that perhaps is not the way that it was. Matthew introduces those two key elements, and we get those out of this story right here. But there's a bigger issue than what our nativity scenes look like. It's a message that Matthew has for us. And so, if you will, follow along with me. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1 says this, and we're going to walk right back to that story that I just read. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who's been born the king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Well, right off the bat, Matthew gives us two important pieces of this story. 
And he introduces us to some characters. He introduces us to this idea of these magi. Now, perhaps you've heard them as wise men, or perhaps even kings. Now, I've got to dispel a couple of the myths right away. There's no indication that they're kings. I know there's a Christmas carol out there that said, we, we three kings, but that's not the case. And in fact, we're not even sure how many magi there were. Um, there could have been three. We know there was three gifts, but there could have been more. There could have been less. could have been a dozen or more. But we do know about the magi that they were considered wise men or magicians. In fact, this is the word where we get, magi is the word where we get magician from. Now, when you think of magician, I don't want you to think of, of illusion, that they were trying to pull tricks on people, but that they were scholars, that they were scientists, that they were studying the natural world, and part of their study was astronomy. And they kept their eye on the stars, not practicing astrology necessarily, but to see what the stars were telling us. And they also studied ancient texts. These would have been some of the, the smartest, wisest men of their day. And since they were very important, and often wise men are, are advisors to the king. In fact, if you go all the way back to the book of Daniel, in the book of Daniel, in your Old Testament, the one that Daniel shows up in the lion's den, well... Daniel interprets some dreams for the king. And Daniel is a Jewish person that's been taken into exile, that's been captured and living in Babylon. And there he interprets some, some dreams for the king. And so the king is so impressed with his interpretation of these dreams that he makes him a wise man. In fact, he makes him the leader of all the wise men in the area, the great advisor to the king. And so there's a good possibility that these, these wise men, these magi, come from Babylon. And they come, and they're maybe perhaps descendants in the school of this school of uh, academia and wise training that comes all the way down from Daniel. And perhaps that's the reason that they're aware of the Jewish scriptures that, they're, that they've been studying and they've been looking for a certain sign. And so what they do is they travel. Matthew, or Matthew tells us that they, they travel from the east. So they're probably from Babylon and connected to Daniel. And that journey from there would have been about 800 to 1,000 miles. Now can you imagine going on a journey, packing up for this trip, telling your family, we're going to go pursue a star that we've seen. And what they've been doing is they've been searching these scriptures, these Old Testament scriptures, and they, they've seen something in the sky. And so that prompts them to go on this uh, almost a thousand mile journey. Rough estimates are that you could travel about 20 miles a day, either by walking or on camel. And if you average that out, this trip took them more, well more than 40 days at a minimum, and perhaps up to 120 days that they're going to set on this journey to find the one that they believe is born to be a king. And they look to the heavens to see this. And they see something in the sky that initiates this. And they see what, they, what Matthew refers to as the Bethlehem star. And there's a star, there's an activity that goes on in the sky. Now, I don't want to get too off track on what the star is. There's different theories. Maybe it was a comet, maybe it was a constellation, maybe it was an alignment of planets. And in fact... Ironically, at the, this year, the end of 2020, 
tomorrow night on the 21st in the evening, about 45 minutes after sundown, you can see what is known as the Bethlehem star or the Christmas star. It's going to appear. It's going to be visible. It has not been visible for 800 years, but it's going to happen again. And what this is, this is the conjunction of the planet Jupiter and the planet Saturn. And planets have their name because they were known originally as wandering stars. And so if you want to see that, you'll see it tomorrow night in the sky. And perhaps, perhaps this is what the, the wise men were seeing on that, that launched them into their journey, that they were pursuing this. But whatever it is, they had a belief that something significant was happening. And so they go on the journey, and they get to Jerusalem, this trip of 900 miles. They get to Jerusalem, and they ask this all-important question, where is the one born king of the Jews? Where is the one that's destined to rule? Now remember, they're foreigners. They come from, from a foreign, at times, enemy state. And they make their way in Jerusalem, and they're expecting to see celebration. Because if they've traveled this far, for surely everybody in the city is rejoicing, because they've gone to the capital city, and this great thing has happened, supposedly. And they ask around, and many people don't even know what they're talking about. But uh, the arrival of these men make enough noise, make enough commotion. Once again, it was perhaps a very large uh, procession that came in with them. Not only the wise men, the magi themselves, but their entourage that came with them. Because somebody was carrying these resources and their animals and perhaps even a security detail was with them. And so they make a scene when they arrive and they start asking this peculiar question. And when they do, I want you to look at verse 3. Verse 3 tells us, when King Herod, now Herod was the ruler over all of Israel, over Jerusalem at the time. King Herod heard this, and he was disturbed, and all of Jerusalem with him. Now, why would King Herod be disturbed? Well, you need to know that King Herod is perhaps in the last year of his life, and he is greatly sick. Perhaps cancer, perhaps gonorrhea, he is being eaten up from the inside, but he is desperate to protect his reign and his legacy. Herod had a huge ego. He was determined to make everybody know and appreciate him. That's why if you go to the, to the um, Holy Lands now, you'll see um, structure after structure after structure that King Herod built because he wanted, he wanted his legacy preserved. Herod was so vain that as he knew he was dying, he left orders that upon his death that hundreds of Jewish officials and um, uh, prominent people would be rounded up and slaughtered in a mass execution because Herod wanted grief to go throughout the land upon his death. And so Herod always was working to protect his throne, his power. And it came at the uh, privilege of Rome to him. In fact, it was even said of Herod that it was even, it's better to be one of his pigs than one of his family members because Herod killed his own family members, yet he wanted to keep up the outward appearance of being authentically Jewish and kosher, and therefore he never touched a pig. So, better to be one of his pigs than one of his own sons and one of his own family members. This is Herod. This is the one that now hears that a king 
has been born. That's why it says he was disturbed. And you can imagine with that kind of response, all of Jerusalem would have been disturbed with him because they knew the kind of man that Herod was. So they come asking this question. The wise men come in town, they're asking this question, and it sets everybody on edge. And so Matthew keeps the story going. Matthew chapter 2, verse 4. When he called all the people together, and this is the King Herod, when he called all the people's chief priests and the teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. So Herod gathers everybody together that knows what's going on, and he says, where's this Messiah? Where, Where is he to be born? And so they, when the king asked, you don't hold back. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. They've gone into their scriptures. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And that means something to them because Bethlehem was the city of David, the place where David came from. And that was their greatest ruler that they'd known. The one when all was right with the world, this king, another one's going to come like David. There was also going to be a shepherd. So the teachers of the law passed this on to Herod. Now here's a challenge for us. The wise men, 800 miles away, are desperately seeking the scriptures and they're looking for a sign, they're looking for an indication that Jesus has come. And when they see one, they make a 900-mile journey. Bethlehem and Jerusalem are about five miles apart. On a clear day, you can see Bethlehem from Jerusalem. And yet, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, the ones that knew the scriptures the best, were not looking for Jesus. I, I wonder if they'd just grown indifferent, if they'd become such an expert in the law that they'd lost any meaning. And this, this passage gives me great pause because I don't want to become so knowledgeable in scripture that I lose the meaning of scripture what Scripture is calling me to and inviting me a part of, and I miss it just because it was just four or five miles away. So in Matthew chapter 2, verse 7, we pick up again. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. Now, see what Herod does? He, he reaches out, invites these magi, these wise men, these foreigners into, a court, into his court and has a meeting with them and he puts on this air, this image that what he wants to do is also worship this child, worship this new king that's been born. Well, what he's doing is he's actually trying to find out the age of Jesus. That's why he says, tell me when the star actually appeared. And what he's doing is he wants to know how old this child could be. And so he sends them, or he thinks he sends them on a mission. You go tell, you find the child that you're looking for. And when you find the child, you come back and you tell me where he is. Because I want to also go and worship him. This is a total ruse. This is a total fabrication. Herod is disturbed. He's threatened. And he is looking to eliminate any threat to his throne. You see, Herod sits on the throne of his own heart. 
and he will not make room for anybody else. So Jesus cannot fit into his plans. And so he sends the wise men on the way of this journey, and he's hoping to hear back from them when they find him. And what Herod does, the scripture tells us later in Matthew, is that when he doesn't hear back from them, he orders a genocide of all the young children in Bethlehem, all the boys in Bethlehem. Can you imagine? This is a small community and estimates between 30 to 50 boys, two years age and down, were slaughtered because of Herod's ego, because of his desire to remain king of his own world. Matthew tells us, verse 9, After they'd heard the king... They went on their way. So now they have what they're looking for. They, they've been told Bethlehem is where you need to go. So they leave Jerusalem. This is a southward trip. Once again, only about four or five miles. They went on their way, and the star they had seen, when it rose ahead of them, when it rose, went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. Now, I don't mean to take apart your nativities anymore, but once again, we don't have any account that the wise men actually showed up at the stable. This is several days, weeks, months, perhaps even as much as two years later that the wise men have arrived. And what they're doing is they're now encountering uh, Mary and Joseph and the child in a house. In some places where they've taken up lodging and the star directs them there. And look at verse 10. Verse 10 says, When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. They were overjoyed. Now, one thing you need to know in, in uh, the uh, ESV, the ESV, I love this verse in the ESV, and I'm going to show it to you here in the ESV. It says it this way. It says, They rejoiced greatly with exceeding, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. That's like triple down on joy. Rejoiced exceedingly, and if you're going to rejoice exceedingly, I guess the best way to do that is with great joy. There is a complete 180 degree opposite reaction that they have. Remember, Herod and Jerusalem was disturbed. The chief priests, they were worried. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were indifferent. They knew the scriptures and they hadn't sought out Jesus. But when the wise men arrive, when they see the result of their 900 to 1,000 mile journey, they're overjoyed. They rejoice exceedingly with great joy. That's their reaction upon finding Jesus. Verse 11. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him great with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now this is where we get the number of wise men we think is three. Because there's three gifts. Once again, it, that doesn't determine the number of wise men. There could have been numerous more. But they do bring three specific gifts. They bring gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, gold, I've always known what is. Frankincense and myrrh, we don't have that. That sounds a little strange to us. But there's significant imagery in the gifts. Now, sometimes scholars debate on whether or not these gifts have symbolism or not. I think they do because I believe Matthew is giving us some clues, some indicators to what kind of king Jesus is going to be. So the gold, first of all, 
Well, that's, that's incredibly valuable. It it's valuable today. It was valuable then. Gold was always associated with kings and royalty and power and wealth and the ability to command. And so gold clearly means they brought a gift for a king, which is appropriate because that's exactly what they set out to do. Frankincense is, is an incense that was burned inside the temple. In fact, it was the only incense allowed inside the temple at the altar and during the worship. And so now you have king and you have the imagery of a priest, one that stands in, on our, in our behalf on God, between us and God and pleads our case to God that leads us into worship. So Jesus is king and he's a priest. And myrrh was a perfume or an ointment used predominantly for embalming a body. In fact, you'll see it come back up later in the story of the Gospels when Jesus' body is prepared and they brought spices out to prepare his body for burial. So you have a king with gold, a priest imagery with frankincense, and you have one that's already being prepared for his death in the myrrh. You have this king that was born to die on behalf of his people. That's the one that the, the wise men show up at this house and can you imagine Mary and Joseph, they're there, and one day they get a knock at the door, and there's this whole entourage, this very impressive-looking entourage that's outside their home in this small Bethlehem town. And here's these men unloading their camels, unloading their animals, whatever it is, and they're bringing in this very valuable gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And when they see this child, they're rejoicing. Their reaction is evident to all around, and they bow down and they worship the king. What a moment that had to be. And there's the invitation for us. There's why I think... Matthew gives us this story, and he includes the wise men. Now, they may not have been the nativity, but they are central to the Christmas story. Because the, the question is, for the Christmas story with the wise men, is what is your reaction? See, I, I don't want us to become so familiar with the story that we're like the chief priests and the teachers of the law that we become indifferent to the story, that we become casual with the story that we become commonplace with it, and it loses all of its wonder, all of its majesty for us. And I don't want to become a King Herod where I sit on the throne of my own life, and I call my own shots. And in fact, Jesus' arrival is more of a threat to me. It makes me worried, it disturbs me, than realizing who he is. Or can we be like the wise men? Where God set the universe in motion to direct them there. And think of all the events God lined up by having Daniel in Babylon centuries earlier where his teaching would pa be passed down and these particular wise men would inherit that and then to align the stars to make something happen in nature where all the details were at God's beck and call where they would move into his arrangement. And then they would follow this star and it would lead them straight to Jesus. Think of the number of details that had to line up and the number of details in your life that God's lined up for you to have an opportunity to come to know who Jesus is.
See, God has been at work. And you may look back on your life and you think, no, I've been through some difficult things. I'm telling you that God can redeem each of those things and he's using those to point you to his son. The one called Jesus, where we've already learned in Matthew, he's come to save his people. Will you let this story wash over you in that way? Where all those details, all those events, good and bad, all the people that he's brought into your life, all the messages that you've heard, all the small things that may have seemed insignificant at the time, God's lined up for you to have an encounter with the one that's born the king. There's the invitation that Matthew gives us. And so will we respond out of indifference? Will we respond out of worry? Or will this year this Christmas season at the end of 2020 that's been so crazy, that's been so chaotic for most of us, and so many have already experienced loss like they would not expect, will you respond with worship? You see, the Magi came, and they brought in their hands earthly treasures. We're invited to come, and we're invited to take away in our hearts a heavenly treasure one that cannot be taken from us see it's only in the response of the magi only in their way of encountering jesus does the message of joy to the world even make sense so there's the invitation that matthew has has for us it's a christmas invitation that has come down through the ages to us but The good news is, Jesus has not changed. The one that was born a king, lived to be a priest, an intercessor for us and God, and died in our place, rose again. And so, the Christmas message is still the same. This child that was born for the purpose of dying, that God loves you and I so much, that he would rather die than live without us, that he'd send his son in the place of what you and I deserve. There's the Christmas gift. There's the one that cannot be taken back. There's the one that cannot be lost. And we should never handle it casually. So, like the wise men, will you receive this? Will you rejoice exceedingly with great joy? Because Jesus is, and always will be, joy to the world. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, as we celebrate Christmas, Father, I ask that you would break through all of our hearts and our lives, that it not simply be about presents and stockings and food, but that it would be about Jesus, the one that came as the King, the one that is Emmanuel with us, the one that is the joy of the world. Father, may we worship Him with joy. And may we never become casual or worried about that. So to Him, the one that you sent, the one that stands in our place, the one that was born, lived, and then died and rose again, so that I need not fear to him all glory. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Joy to the world.